The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. We're really happy to have Rita Gross back at the center. Many of you have heard Rita speak uh, before, and we're fortunate to have her leading a four-week course on Buddhist history, uh, starting the first Tuesday in November, I think the 2nd through the 22nd it is, uh, 1st through the 22nd of November, four Tuesdays, 7.30 to 9, you can sign up for that in the entranceway. If you don't know Rita Grove, she's a well-known feminist scholar, Buddhist scholar, taught for a number of years at uh, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, now emeritus status, and teaches uh, at her teacher's center in Virginia, uh, Lotus Garden, her teacher is Judson Kondro Ricochet, a well-known female, which is unusual in the Tibetan world, teacher, and uh, here is going to be in Minneapolis possibly next summer, so we're curious about that, and we'll get information out to folks if that's true. And she's written a number of important books that people often refer to, including uh, Buddhism, after patriarchy, soaring and settling Buddhist perspectives on contemporary social and religious issues, and a garland of feminine reflections. She's also working currently on a book on uh, religious diversity, or religion and diversity. And part of the theme of the history course will be looking at this tendency of our minds towards fundamentalism, including us Buddhists. <laughs> so, I'm looking forward to that course and just happy to have you back, Rita. So tonight's talk is, and she told me I misspoke last time and said how uh, having gender leads subverts enlightenment. And the title actually is how clinging to gender can subvert enlightenment. So thanks, Rita. Nice to have you back at the center. Thanks, Mark. Is this um, working properly now? Is it working? Okay. Um, yeah, that's a little difference in the title there. <laughs> um, in trouble. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm very happy to be back here. I always enjoy coming to Common Ground. Um, I've taught here a lot over the years, and I've uh, taught Buddhist history for Buddhist practitioners here a fair amount. It's one of the places where I've taught it the most. I've also taught it a lot at Lotus Garden and at Zen Mountain Monastery in upstate New York. But I'm always happy to have an audience to discuss Buddhist history for Buddhist practitioners, which I think is a very important topic. Um, I also want to introduce friends of mine from Milwaukee so that maybe you know them. Steve and Jeannie Lowry. I walked in and I, it was like deja vu. These people, I see them in Milwaukee all the time. But they're visiting, and I don't know how they found out that I was speaking here tonight, but uh, so please welcome them. I'm very happy to have you here. So tonight what I'm going to do, um, the title of my talk is, as announced, how clinging to gender subverts enlightenment. And what I've done, uh, I have here a talk or a paper that I have written, and I'm going to be reading it in part, because once you get an argument in very tight form, it's very hard to present it just uh, off the cuff again. And I will be interspersing what I have to have written with uh, oral comments as well. Later on, um, if you want to, this 
text that I'll be reading from is on my website, so you can actually go to the website and download it, read it again, or whatever you want to do with it. And it was also published in um, Inquiring Mind about a year ago. So um, it's a topic that I've obviously worked on practically my whole life, or at least my whole Buddhist life. Um, and I would say that uh, this, this paper, after 30 years of really thinking hard about Buddhism and gender, I think I finally got it. At least I, I, this, is, this is the most succinct and clearest statement I've come up with to date on what the whole issue of Buddhism and gender is about. Um, so without further ado, let's get started. All forms of Buddhism adhere to teachings of egolessness, asserting that there is no permanent abiding self beneath the flux of experience, despite our deep-seated emotional reaction that there must be such a thing because it feels so real. Buddhist teachings also claim that much of our suffering is caused by our grasping to that non-existent but very deceptive self, Enlightenment, peace, unbinding, unbinding comes from Tanisara Bhikkhu, by the way, uh, whatever words one uses to convey the whole point of Buddhist view and practice require that one lay down the burden of constantly trying to constitute a self, an enduring and reliable identity out of the kaleidoscope of our experience. Thus, it seems that the Buddha intended us to take this business of egolessness with utmost seriousness. <clears throat> One should wonder then why Buddhists have been so shy about questioning the centrality we attribute to gender in our everyday lives and, and are so oblivious to the overbearing importance gender plays in Buddhist institutional life. If we're serious about egolessness, why do we attribute so much centrality to gender? That's the fundamental question. No other element of experience has such a stranglehold on our immediate reactions to people we meet, thus conditioning how we view them and making it impossible for us to simply encounter them freshly, free of preconceptions and prejudice. Such everyday reactiveness might not be completely devastating had it not been elevated into the supreme organizing principle of traditional Buddhist institutional life. So there's two things that will run through this, this commentary. The way we are imprisoned by gender in our everyday uh, interactions and reactions, and the way in which Buddhist institutional life has been completely organized around gender. Not only do Buddhist institutions, such as educational centers, meditation centers, and monastic orders traditionally practice sexual segregation, which is pretty much the norm in Asian Buddhism, they also practice gender hierarchy, with the result that men's practice and education has always been much better supported economically and emotionally than has women's practice and education. No wonder the view that female rebirth is unfortunate compared to male rebirth grew so ever stronger and in many, in many parts of the Buddhist world, eventual rebirth as a male was presented as the only viable solution to the misfortune of female rebirth. I can assure you that there are still people in 
parts of the Buddhist world who believe that and who practice that um, the best thing a woman can do is gain enough merit to be reborn as a man in her next life. Um, I can assure you that that is still happening. The fact that many North American Buddhists are unaware of these traditional attitudes and practices does nothing to cancel these facts about traditional Buddhism or make them irrelevant. You know, a lot of Western Buddhists will say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, we don't do that. Even if that were the case, Western Buddhists have a moral obligation to be aware of the devastation this attribution of relevance or reality to gender has wrought in Buddhist life historically and the ways in which it still limits Buddhists in many parts of the world. Furthermore, looking beneath the surface of the superficial equality reveals that sexual stereotypes and fixed notions about gender are still alive and well here also. Buddhists, at least reasonably well-educated Buddhists, all affirm egolessness and claim to believe in it, claim to believe that it actually describes how things are, even if they don't really understand egolessness and can't explain it. That's very common. Egolessness is, in fact, very hard to explain. Uh, so many people, you know, have not a very clear idea of what it means, but it's what we've been taught, so we, we try to believe in it. But in spite of that belief, most of them also expect women, men and women to be different and to have different life plans and expectations. They seem untroubled by the fact that even in North America, most of the best known and most popular teachers are men. They are uninterested in and even hostile to Buddhist feminist reforms, such as lineage chants that include female ancestors, gender inclusive and gender neutral liturgies, or specific attention to female role models. In other words, their allegiance to teachings on egolessness has had no impact on their reliance on conventional everyday gender norms and stereotypes. Um, and later on when we have some discussion, you can challenge me if I think that it's not an accurate uh, description of what's going on here. Um, pretty hard. <laughs> For many years, I have used the slogan to summarize this situation. This is what I think a lot of Buddhists actually believe and act on. Though there is no permanent abiding self or ego, nevertheless, gender is real. That's kind of the summary of the whole paper. Though there is no permanent abiding self or ego, nevertheless, gender is real. Put more succinctly, egolessness is gendered. A statement that makes no sense, but a statement that captures the absurdity of clinging to rigid and fixed gender norms while also affirming egolessness. Notice the operative words here are always clinging, have something to do with clinging, rigidity, fixed inflexible. It seems to me that only one element of this motto can actually be adhered to because the two elements are mutually exclusive. Which is more important to us, egolessness and enlightenment or the security of conventional notions about gender? And not only gender, but in many other regards, people often 
hang on to conventional concepts because they feel it gives them security. It gives them some kind of handle on the world. We were talking about that at dinner tonight in regard to uh, exclusive truth claims in religion, that um, people try to hang on to a conceptual fix on the world, and it never, it just never works. It's always a prison. That conceptual fix on the world is always a prison. It always makes us brittle people who break easily, and it cannot lead to the flexibility and ease of enlightenment. It simply cannot. From head to toe, Buddhism has always affirmed that um, rigidly held concepts are not part of the enlightened state of mind. They can't be because of what they do to us and the way that they, um, the boxes they put us into. To go back to my paper, the tragedy is that Buddhists have spent a great deal of time and energy deconstructing ego with many sophisticated teachings. It's been one of the major teaching points of all of Buddhism, deconstruct ego, proof after proof after proof that there cannot be a permanent abiding self. One would think that in working so hard to deconstruct ego, Buddhists would have noticed how central a component of ego gender is. It just seems like, how could this be missed? How could this have been overlooked? Instead, they have spent a considerable amount of time and energy making and enforcing rules about gender, especially for monastics, and have also acquiesced without comment to gender norms of the surrounding cultures. This is one of the things that people often comment about Buddhism, that it, it doesn't really ever critique the culture in which it lands. It acquiesces to the given cultural norms. Um, and, um, you know, that's perhaps something of a problem. But they have usually not put these two enterprises together, deconstructing ego but making a lot of rules about gender or being very conventional about gender. They have not questioned why rules and norms about gender should be so important if nothing about the phenomenal self truly exists. Instead, the most commonly invoked statement about gender is the slogan that enlightened mind is neither male nor female. How many of you have heard that at some point? A lot of people have heard that, enlightened mind. Enlightened mind is neither male nor female, problem dismissed. Nothing to talk about. As if that truism by itself undid all the pain and injustice caused by gender norms and stereotypes. It's a very slick way of just refusing to face an issue or being in denial that it even could be a problem. Comfortable, even smug in their assurance that gender is ultimately unreal, which it is of course, many Buddhists are then very comfortable insisting that everyone conform to conventional gender norms and criticizing those who defy them. To ensure that enlightenment is not subverted by clinging to gender, we need to bring two, these two sets of discourse together to analyze their relevance to each other. In the first instance, what is, what is needed is not citation of the absolute, that enlightened mind is beyond gender, but much more discussion at the relative level, many more critical analyses of the relevance and utility of conventional gender norms and practices. 
For though enlightened mind is beyond male and female, unenlightened minds are decidedly not beyond concern with male and female. I have found in my many years of talking and writing about Buddhism and gender that Buddhists really dislike talking and thinking about gender at this level, at the relative level. They really dislike it. Perhaps because apart from its uplifted slogan that enlightened mind is beyond gender, Buddhism's actual record on the practicalities of gender is quite depressing. Most will do anything to avoid that discussion of the practicalities of gender, even shaming and ridiculing those who want to have the discussion. And, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I was told that this whole thing was irrelevant because enlightened mind is beyond gender and I should know better than that, um, <laughs> I could probably uh, fund a meditation center myself. It's really been, it's really been a, people just don't want to have the practical on the ground discussion about Buddhism and gender. They want to say, we don't have a problem because we all know that enlightened mind is beyond gender. So it's so easy to deny the relative by recourse to the absolute. Happens, I think it happens on other issues as well. The basic problem with conventional approaches to gender is that the immediate, often unavoidable perception that someone is either a man or a woman instantaneously brings with it a whole host of assumptions, expectations, and restrictions. And I can demonstrate this to you to imagine meeting a person whose gender is indeterminate, and you don't know for sure whether it's a man or a woman. People are usually very uncomfortable. Um, it's, uh, it's something very interesting to experience, something very interesting to watch. And I wish we had more situations where we could really confront people with that experience of not being able to look at someone and immediately do that label. Because what, what the label does, the label is not a problem. What, what is the problem is all the assumptions that go with the label. That's, in many ways, the whole problem of, of conventional mind and what Buddhist meditation is trying to get us to drop, that we put a label on something, we have a word for it, and then the word blocks the actual experience. We live in the realm of the words and concepts, and we miss the actual experience. We're no longer in touch with the actual experience. Those of you who've done a lot of uh, extended practice, those of you who've studied Buddhist philosophy to any extent know that that's such a central issue in Buddhism, the way in which we immediately glom onto words and concepts and take them for real. We really think they're real, that if we have the right words, the right concepts, we've got reality. And of course, Buddhism says, no, that's, that's not it at all. That's just a, a concept that we've made up. It doesn't have anything to do with what's really going on. There is obviously no problem with the immediate perception. Gender designation as conventional, agreed-upon labels are harmless and somewhat useful. So labels, this is a point that's very strongly made in Mahayana Buddhism, but I think it applies to all Buddhism. Labels are not a problem as long as we gently know it's a label and that that's all it is. They're, they're useful devices as long as we don't believe in them too much. 
um, as conventional agreed upon labels are harmless and somewhat useful. They help us talk to each other. They help us negotiate the relative world. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing is, is um, very useful. The problem lies with all the baggage that is imposed upon the perception by long-standing training in conventional gender stereotypes. And that's a very important sentence in this paper. The problem lies with all the baggage that is imposed on the perception by long-standing training in conventional gender stereotypes. Now, you can easily transfer this language to any other kind of problem about race or culture or religion. We label somebody, and then we have, you know, we've got a whole set of baggage that goes along with that label. For example, thinking about my own experience, I know that I have a female body, and in my full-figured case, that is quite obvious to others as well. But it doesn't really give people much reliable information about me. Right? Very little reliable information about me. And no information that conforms me to the stereotypical female gender role. It does not mean that I must bear children or even that I can. It does not mean that I necessarily have a gentle and non-aggressive demeanor as opposed to a violent and nasty temperament. And I think a lot of people think I'm nasty because I'm always bringing up things they don't want to think about. If you only you wouldn't bring those things up, they wouldn't exist. You know, out of sight, out of mind. Happens when I teach gender. It also happens when I teach Buddhist history. That um, I don't want to think about those problems you're bringing up. If you didn't bring them up, they wouldn't be there. It does not even, my female body does not even guarantee my primary sexual orientation, which has been guessed wrong almost as often as it has been guessed right, both by observers, both women and men. My female sex is not a reliable guide to my interests and concerns. I care little for many of the things that are supposed to interest women. But I am also interested in some things that are generally thought to be of more interest to women than to men. In short, though my sex may be the first thing about me that registers, it tells people relatively little about me. Nevertheless, though my female body doesn't translate into anything essential about me, a good deal has been projected onto it by society, by religions, and by individuals who think that the shape of my body reveals something intrinsically existing. That Buddhist wording, intrinsically existing, that's what people always assume. Woman, there's something in, you're a woman, there's something intrinsic, intrinsically female about you. Something on which it is valid to pin all sorts of meanings and limitations. And that's what we do with gender. We label somebody and then we... That's okay. That's, our people are obviously, most people have a clear sexual appearance. That's not the problem. It's what we, the, the, the labels and the limitations we then pin onto that, uh, that name. All sorts of meanings and limitations get pinned onto uh, the body shape that we call male or female. Thus, conventional gender norms and stereotypes are essentially useless for determining what any individual is really about. 
But analysis of gender at the relative level must also discuss the tremendous pain caused by conventional gender norms, a topic that should be of concern to Buddhists who claim that Dharma practitioners should attempt to alleviate suffering. In a traditional culture, even a Buddhist culture, I could have been forced into the female gender role in spite of my own capabilities and inner direction. Easily happens in most traditional cultures. It is devastating to think of how many children, both boys and girls, have been forced into lifestyles to which they were unsuited by conventional gender expectations. Some parts of my analysis of how clinging to gender subverts enlightenment actually have long been recognized by Buddhists. The easily misunderstood traditional teaching that female rebirth is less fortunate than male rebirth is precisely about the pain of being female in a male-dominated system, a point that is clearly recognized in traditional lists of the woes of female rebirth. So this, this very... Uh, outside of Western Buddhism, very common Buddhist teaching that female rebirth is it's less fortunate, the wording is important, less fortunate than male rebirth. Why is it less fortunate than male rebirth? Because of what being a woman, what goes with being a woman, in a traditional culture at least. And this was very clearly recognized in, in the traditional Buddhist texts. Um, they had lists of the woes of female rebirth and there's a classic list of five of them. Three of them are biological, uh, menstruation, pregnancy, childbirth, and two of them are cultural or social, uh, being always subject to male domination. Traditional Buddhist texts clearly realized that that caused suffering, and that's why it was less fortunate to be a, a woman than a man, because it was a cultural norm that you had to be subject to male authority as a woman. And the last one is having to work very hard always to take care of your husband and children. These are the woes of female rebirth. Uh, and in, a, you know, in another assessment of them, um, women don't always regard the biological, quote-unquote, woes of female rebirth as so terrible. And the social-cultural ones are because that's how humans set up the world. There's nothing other that says men have to dominate women and women have to do all the all the you know kind of boring domestic work while men get to do the more interesting things there's nothing that says that has to be the way it is that's just the way humans have chose to set up the world but i think the point here that's really important is that buddhists have always recognized about half of the traditional feminist claim by recognizing that it is not pleasant to be a female in a patriarchal system. They clearly recognize that. But what, what Buddhists have done, it probably seems easier in many cases, what Buddhists have done with that is say, well, we have to find a solution to this problem. The solution is obviously to figure out a way for women to become men. That's, what else are we gonna do? There has to be a way for women to become men. And um, there are plenty of, of Mahayana sutras about sex change, instantaneous sex change. Plenty of them. Um, but, you know, most that doesn't happen to most people. So this whole notion of in the next lifetime, in the next lifetime. I, I know a, a woman in Chicago who used to study at Lotus Garden, 
And um, this is a very, very painful story, actually. And um, she was older and a little bit heavy. And we were, they were trying to teach some versions of Tibetan yoga, which are very difficult to do. And take you need to have a small body and be strong, and it helps to be young. And you, what you do is put your palm, your hands, your fists down here, and then raise your whole body up off the floor um, on your on your hands. And um, you know it can be done. I've seen it done. I have managed to do it a few seconds myself, not recently, but. This, this Tibetan monk was trying to help this woman do this practice. She couldn't do it. And he just said, to comfort her, he said, oh, well, in your next life when you're a man, you'll be able to do it. And that was the last time she ever, ever went to that center. <laughs> you know? The last time she said, this is just, and I don't blame her one bit. Extremely unskillful. But the point I'm also trying to make is that, you know, people were trying to solve what they saw as a problem, the difficulties of the unpleasantness of being female in a patriarchal system. Well, why not change the system instead? That apparently didn't seem possible in traditional times. And I can speculate about the reasons, but I'm not going to tonight. Um, why not change the system? This liability of female rebirth being so unfortunate has been especially devastating for female monastics who have long faced reduced economic support, inferior training, and in some parts of the Buddhist world, extinction of their ordination lineages because traditional Buddhist monastic rules are extreme in the way they favor monks over nuns. There's this famous story in the Pali texts about the institution of the nuns order in which you know the Buddha refuses three times, and finally he consents. And then he says after, if, then he gives the women, the nuns, eight rules that make them permanently subordinate to the monks. One of which is that a nun, uh, a nun, um, must always bow to a monk, even if she's been ordained for a hundred years, and the monk has just been ordained, because all monks are superior to any and all nuns in the hierarchy. And then, he, then the Buddha is also reported to have said, and now because I've done this, the Dharma is only going to last for half as long as it would have lasted otherwise. So it's a really, you know, really vicious story. Well, with modern textual studies of these texts, most scholars would now say that whole uh, story, which is always quoted in traditional sources and in Western sources, was actually an interpolation that was put into the text at a later point, that it's just not part of the original story. And that makes sense, because in so many places, when the Buddha talks about his Sangha, he talks about the fourfold Sangha, that his Sangha is a fourfold Sangha, which consists of monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen. That's the norm for the Sangha. It should consist of monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen. And he says this over and over throughout throughout the text, throughout the Pali text, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Pali version of it, when, when Mara comes for the last time to tell Buddha, you know, it's time for you to die already. You've been around long enough. It's time for you to die. Buddha basically says, yes, now that I have accomplished disciples in all four orders, 
among the monks, among the nuns, among the laymen, among the laywomen. I have accomplished disciples in all four orders who can teach and transmit the teachings. It would be okay if I ended my sojourn on earth. My, my work is done. That's a very important place in the whole texts and stories about the Buddha. The same thing is said, by the way, in the Sanskrit Mahaparinirvana Sutra, which is the Mahayana retelling of the same story. The same thing is said about the fourfold Sangha. So you tell that to people today, and they just kind of brush it off and say, oh, but the Buddha didn't really want to institute the nun's order, so why should we care about it? Um, and it, it's just interesting to watch how people pick which texts they want to emphasize. What are the values of the people who want to emphasize what is probably a fault of not even an original text, but one that was stuck in well, by a misogynist editor at a certain point over the comment that comes over and over and over in the Pali Suttas. In some parts of the Buddhist world in contemporary times, nuns have largely overcome their inferior status. This is places where the, the full ordination for nuns still persists, which is places like Korea, Taiwan, places that are majorly Chinese Buddhism. In the Theravada world and the Tibetan world, the full ordination for nuns has been completely lost, and it is really a struggle to get it reinstated or restored. It's a, it's a battle that has been going on in the Buddhist world for a good 20, 30 years, and people get very frustrated, for example, with the Dalai Lama, who very much is in favor of having Tibetan nuns be fully ordained, but he will not go against all of his conservative advisors who oppose it. He just feels he can't make that break, that he can't go against his advisors on this point. So we're still studying it. But in other parts of the Buddhist world, monks and also some lay people are trying very hard to keep women from gaining full ordination as monastics. I have friends in Thailand who are very much into the uh, full ordination movement. And they have to hold secret ordinations because it's illegal in Thailand to ordain a woman as a nun. They, they, they hold secret ordinations. Uh, it's a very interesting kind of thing. It is hard to understand how otherwise intelligent and compassionate men monks cannot figure out the legalisms required to initiate or reinstate nuns' lineage, ordination lineages, given if their own ordination lineages were at stake they would solve the problem in a heartbeat. Many of us say that. To justify their unwillingness to ordain women, uh, some argue that deep practice and spiritual attainment are not dependent on status. Therefore, women could attain realization despite their inferior position in the Buddhist world. That argument is correct, of course. Though men never apply that logic to themselves, that it would be okay for them to have an inferior position in the Buddhist world, but only to women. There are profound Buddhist teachings on how useful obstacles can be in the long run if they don't destroy you first. And I think these are among the most profound Buddhist teachings. But because obstacles are so difficult to work with, nothing in Buddhist thought suggests that one should deliberately place obstacles in people's paths. You know, we're not wise enough to figure out what obstacles you need and you need and you need and put it in someone's path. 
And there is no doubt that throughout history, the nuns' lower status and lack of full ordination has been a great obstacle to their attainments and their very survival. Their low status resulting in lack of support for nuns clearly can, can subvert women's enlightenment. One must also wonder about the spiritual well-being of those who continue to insist that nothing can be done about traditional gender hierarchy. It seems that ego-grasping is quite alive and well in such a mindset. So much for ego-grasping and gender as they pertain to the more mundane aspects of Buddhist institutions, lifestyle, and everyday life. What about some of the more profound Buddhist analytical and meditational techniques? The various deconstructive exercises of Buddhism were all designed to challenge students to try to find the substantial ego that they took for granted and not finding that self discover peace and freedom. Buddhist practice in a nutshell, right? To uh, try to find the insubstantial ego that they took for granted and not finding that self discover peace and freedom. In the famous Mahamudra investigations, one explores whether mind can be found in any specific attribute, such as shape or color. Mind is usually used for self in the Vajrayana tradition. In the Pali Suttas, the Buddha is asked about many specific, about any specific element being isolated and analyzed, and he often replies when asked about it, recognize that it is not yours, not you. Don't identify with it. Form is not you. Feelings are not you, etc., etc. I suggest that while I have never heard a teacher apply these techniques to deconstructing gender, they could easily be applied to that task, significantly strengthening the deconstruction of ego in the process. In fact, I think it would be among the most powerful tools for deconstructing ego. Such analysis had the added virtue that gender would be deconstructed on genuinely Buddhist grounds not just through methods familiar to Western secular feminism. In other words, we're not saying it's unfair or you know, any of the sort of Western ways of working with these things. We say it's un-Buddhist. It's, it's, what you're doing is by not deconstructing gender is actually reinforcing people's ego clinging. You need to get at some real Buddhist tools and use them for Buddhist purposes of deconstructing ego uh, relaxing into the openness and spaciousness of the freedom of enlightenment. Buddhist analyses break down things that are assumed to be truly existing entities by showing that we can't find them, no matter where we look. To demonstrate, let us work with the skanda, specifically the first skanda of form. According to Buddhist analysis, we think we have or are a truly existing self, but upon examination, this turns out not to be the case because the purported self actually consists of five insubstantial components, the skandhas. Looking at the first skanda of form, we see that it likewise is not an entity, but a component. It breaks down into the four great elements, which helps us recognize that having a form does not translate into being a self. Commonly, such analyses also point out that things we often think define the form such as color or shape, really cannot be found and do not confer truly existing selfhood on the form. 
It is curious that traditional analyses using color or shape to break down our assumption of real selfhood never use the terms male and female in the same way. This omission allows people to easily believe in egolessness while clinging to conventional gender norms and stereotypes which are rigid, arbitrary, inaccurate, and cruel. Would it not be just as useful to disclaim selfhood based on having a male or a female form as it is to disclaim selfhood conferred by color or shape? Would it not be useful to contemplate gender as a component, as the form skanda is a component, that gender is a component, made out of biology, cultural expectations, and habitual patterns? Biology, cultural expectations, and habitual patterns. Cultural expectations and habitual patterns don't count for much in Buddhism. They're not worth putting a lot of emphasis on rather than anything that truly and substantially exists, just as it is useful to deconstruct every other thing that seems to be an entity into its component parts. Now, I don't know how much of this kind of analytical work you've done here, but it is hardcore Buddhist thought. It's a hardcore Buddhist practice, very fundamental to getting the point. I suspect that many Buddhists, while willing to do analyses to recognize that form does not confer selfhood, might balk at applying the same rigorous analyses, analysis to their male or female forms because gender seems so real to them. But doing so intensifies the deconstructive power of the analysis, making egolessness much less a theoretical belief and much more an in-your-face reality. I think that's really important for Buddhist practice, to really, egolessness needs to be not a theoretical belief, but in-your-face reality. And I think nothing does that, like really radical, rigorous deconstruction of gender as anything that there's anything to beyond our, our, cultural, our cultural concepts. Without that additional step, people can easily do the traditional exercises and genuinely believe in egolessness, but still be quite attached to gender. The effectiveness of such deconstructive analysis can be demonstrated by the reaction of a sweet young man after a day of my teaching on Buddhism and gender. He said, without my mustache and genitals, I'd have no idea who I was. I wanted to shout, bingo, you've got it. Constantly going, consistently going to that place of not knowing who one is would go far to attain the peace of egolessness and freedom from the prison of gender roles. Um, now this is a point at which I'm going to intersperse with a, a story. I didn't have room in the words in this for this story, but... One of the things I've done for years is tease men about their, um, should I use the word addiction, their strict adherence to pants and their fear of skirts. <laughs> <laughs> it's just endemic. It's so funny. Um, you know, women very easily switch between pants and skirts, which in some ways, I think in many ways, women are more free of the prison of gender roles than men are. Um, we may have, we may still make 67 cents to the dollar or whatever it is, but I think we're freer of the prison of gender roles because we see what a prison it's been. 
Now, this pants thing is it's really very funny, especially for men who meditate. <laughs> we were saying at Lotus Garden last summer, if the men would ever try pants for meditation or skirts for meditating on a hot day, they would never go back to pants for meditating on a hot day. It's just so much more comfortable to sit cross-legged in a loose, full skirt than in tight pants, which, of course, is why monks wear skirts. <laughs> so the monks at Lotus Garden wear their maroon skirts, and they seem quite comfortable with it. The Lopans, I'm a Lopan, which is the Sanskrit is Acharya, which means senior teacher. Um, has been, my teacher has been struggling for years with the problem that we should have some kind of distinctive thing we wear so that people know we're the Lopans. She's gotten flack from other Tibetan teachers to say to her, if those people are Lopans, we should be able to tell. You should, you know, you should. She said, well, it would be you know, no problem for the, for the women, but it's the men. <laughs> She, she said, one of the, who's recently deceased, but one of the male Lopans said to Rinpoche, I'll do anything for you, but don't make me wear a skirt. What is it? Is it so fearful, so degrading, so fearful to somehow be touched with things that are associated with women and with femininity? The other, the other male, there were four women and two male lopans at Lotus Garden. Now there's only one male lopan. And I, I've often teased him. And he teases me. He says, Rita, you'll never give us, get us to give up our pants. <laughs> and I just looked at him finally one day and I said, if you can't give up your pants, how are you ever going to give up your ego? <laughs> <laughs> and all he could say was, Mm, that's a good question. So, as a result, we still don't have Lopan outfits. <laughs> Transitions into the final arguments. But if we all believe that enlightened mind is a natural state of mind, uh, that in, in Vajrayana Buddhism, the Enlightened and the natural state of mind are synonyms of one another because our birthright is to be enlightened, not to be confused. Why is it important so, to, so rigorously, I'll start that sentence again, but if we all believe that enlightened mind, the natural state of mind, is beyond gender, why is it so important to rigorously deconstruct gender? When teachers scold students for bringing up gender issues by citing that enlightenment is beyond gender, or when Buddhists, frustrated with a feminist critique of conventional Buddhist gender practices, also rely on this slogan, they are missing an important point. People cannot go to that state of mind beyond gender on the spot any more than they can just drop self-grasping the first time they hear about teachings of, hear teachings about egolessness. Did you drop belief in ego the first time somebody explained egolessness to you? I doubt it. That transformation takes a great deal of time and effort. And just as training is, required, is necessary for people to actually approach egolessness, so training is required to transcend the prison of gender roles. Neither just happens. Additionally, a large percentage of self-grasping is not just ego-grasping. 
It is grasping at an ego that is deeply conditioned by its residence in a male or a female body. And for many people, the maleness or femaleness of that body takes precedence over its humanity. I really think for, for most people, their first identification as man or woman, human, is not their first identification. It is important to grab people where they really live, which for many is not in their form skanda anyway. They live intimately with and identify very closely with their gender assignments. Until those attachments are cut, there will be ego clinging, no matter how much people may believe in egolessness. Giving absolute answers to questions about the relative is very unskillful in the short run, even if such answers are true in the long run. So I get very impatient with teachers who answer questions about gender with enlightened minds beyond male and female. There's no issue. I get very frustrated with them because they should have the skillful means to look at the relative issues and not jump immediately to the absolute answer. But, we live, but to live in a relative world, we need our gender reference points, some may protest. This is an argument you often get back. In the relative world, we need our gender reference points. A well-ordered society requires appropriate sex-specific behavior for men and women, they may claim. Even if that argument were true, it cannot be translated into an argument that male-dominant gender relationships are good and just. That we need order doesn't translate into needing male dominance. Beyond that, the main problem with current gender arrangements is the rigidity and fixation with which people cling to them. A rigidity and fixation that is incompatible with relaxing into the state of mind beyond gender. How could you relax into a state of mind beyond gender if you're still clinging to gender norms? To negotiate the relative gendered world in an ethical and ordered way, we need only one thing. We need a humane kind sex ethic, not numerous gender norms and stereotypes telling us how men should be and what women cannot do. The foundation of that sex ethic is already well present in Buddhism. Sexual ethics is one of the five basic precepts found in the beginning of Buddhism through all of Buddhism. The foundations of that sex ethic are present. If one does not make an ego out of gender, one does not make an ego out of gender, one would still know whether one is a man or a woman, gay, straight, bisexual, transgender, whatever else we might think of. But those identities need to fit very loosely and be worn very lightly. That's a very important point, that those identities will still know if we're men or women, gay or straight, bisexual, transgender, whatever. We would know that, but we wouldn't make an ego out of those identities. They need to be fit loosely and be very lightly worn. And for them to be very lightly worn, all sense of privilege or deprivation that has developed around gen one's gender identity, all rigidity regarding proper roles and behaviors for the various genders must be cut through. And notice I said the sense of privilege as well as the sense of deprivation. We can just as easily make, a sense, make an ego out of our sense of being deprived or oppressed as we can make an ego out of being on top of the heap. 
and many, many people make a very strong ego out of being oppressed. I know what I'm talking about because I did it at the beginning of my life. And it was a pretty damn strong, you know, this whole thing about righteous anger. People cling to their righteous anger. That doesn't get us anywhere. All sense of privilege or deprivation that is developed around one's gender identity, all rigidity regarding proper roles and behaviors for the various genders must be cut through. We really do need to stop making an ego out of gender. And that may well be more difficult than learning about skandhas and other traditional Buddhist deconstructive analyses. Gender may well be the last component of our conditioned, composite, impermanent, ever-changing ego to lose its grip on us. That is how clinging to gender subverts enlightenment. Given the dire consequences of our clinging to gender, it really is a tragedy that for so long Buddhists have been blind to how this attachment subverts enlightenment and so unwilling to take seriously the analysis that clinging to gender really is an obstacle to resting in the peacefulness and spaciousness of enlightened mind. The end. <laughs> so, um, we have time for a Please speak up if you're going to um, ask a question, and if you have a comment, please don't make a speech. Yes. Well, I experienced when you were talking about less than a week ago, I, I'm a security guard at the uh, Vikings home games, and we do these fat there on his arms, uh, ankles, backbone waist, and men have to go through the men's lines, and women have to go through the women's, and there was a guy next to me, and this woman tried to get through, and you know, I recognized her as being a female in about two seconds, and he, he couldn't recognize her as a female, I mean, she was about my age, and she was about 20 and a different, uh, a different uh, race. And so we just stared at her for like two or three minutes and finally turned her away. But uh, I guess it kind of missed the final point of what you were saying there. But um, I was also kind of laughing at this discomfort. But uh, uh, it's, it's kind of fascinating, you know, um, the men only have to wait 15, 20 minutes in line, and some of the women have to wait like an hour and a half. And, you know, so I think she doesn't wait so long. And she kind of recognized it. If she went to him, if he wouldn't know, you know, if, he, if she were a male or a female. But. Well, it's always a useful uh, exercise to somehow be able to encounter people whose gender isn't so clear. Most people, you look at them and, you know, it's instantaneous. And then the whole, like I keep saying, the whole baggage comes along. Um, there has been a, you know, a good bit of improvement in this in my lifetime, but certainly when I was a girl and a teenager, it was unrelieved, 100%. Yes? I just think it's a really valuable thing to keep in mind that I certainly was raised with the idea that I was the first generation of women, at least in my family, who had all of these options that was free of at least some traditional gender roles. I, I don't think my mother was raised with the idea that she could have a profession, and I was. And yet, 
with all of the freedoms and all of the work that the women fought for me, fought for me to have. And that is my daily life, I do so cling to gender roles. Like, I'm, I'm a baby sister, and how much I love being a little sister, and that role, how much I really, really like it when men bigger than me carry my suitcase. Uh, and, and that seems I don't know if that's gender as much as it is practicality. Would you carry this <laughs> for a, for a boy? I, but it's because I'm a girl and I'm the youngest. Yeah. You but know, would you carry, I mean, wouldn't you carry a boy's suitcase who is smaller than you? Yeah. So some of these things that we, we, we think are clinging to a gender role could be, but if we become practical, I hold the door open for men with grocery bags. What's, why, why should I, if I'm carrying the grocery bags, why should I mind if a man holds the door for me? It's not about man-woman, it's about the practicality of who needs a little bit of help. So I think that's important to think about when we think about what's, what's gender and what's practicality. I just want to thank you for um, How long have you been hanging out at Buddhist centers? Kind of a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't think people, you know, talk about this. And, yeah, as I said, Buddhists don't like to talk about the practicalities on the ground of these issues. They just don't want to go there. Tremendous it's resistance. Funny, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what this is, but um, I'm, I'm very aware of feeling protective of you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the topic that you're bringing up. I mean, it's, it's a, it's very, um, it's hot. <laughs> well, I've been doing it for 31 years now, and I'm still alive, so. <laughs> I'm still alive and, you know, kind of famous for it, so it hasn't been too bad. I mean, it's it's very hard, but um, somebody's got to do it. It's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Um, who was next? It's hard to know. I'll take you. Uh, my name is Paul. Uh, here at Thomas Ground, we have the, uh, a humanist practice group uh, for mindfulness. And, um, I think we've been pretty good so far at not clinging to oppression or privilege, but um, I, I would be interested to know, um, you know if you were to develop a curriculum for a group like this, or even just um, sort of putting this together, how would you frame the group sort of at the high level? And do you have thoughts about... Um, you mean a, a gay men's curriculum? Right, right. And then, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can do that because I don't have your experience. And I think it, it, those kinds of curricula are better done by the people who actually suffer the oppression or suffer the whatever and, and then are really well trained so that you're not just ranting and, and can really pull together the right sources. Um, because um, there is, you know, there is quite a bit of Buddhist literature now on um, 
on especially gender. There's a there's a couple of anthologies I believe on on gender and gay men, and I, I know a few names of, of people who've thought about. There are some very very prominent Buddhists and Buddhist scholars who are out gay, um, and they're they're not you know they're very prominent. So I can give you those names later on. But I really do think that off the top of my head, I wouldn't be able to suggest a very good curriculum, but it would be better if, if you guys did it. Uh, two questions. First is, you know, I'm kind of wondering that the basic physiology of men and women are different. You know, we have different hormonal structures, and because of that, in some ways, we are different. So how does that tie into, you know, what you're trying to say, because it's like on one hand we can let go of all of that, and then on the other hand, if our life experience continues to show us, then at some point we kind of say, well, this is reality, so how, how does all of that work together, especially with the physiology part, and then also with the, with the Buddhism, I mean, how much of that do you think is um, the Buddhist sort of teaching following, and how much of that is you know, the countries where Buddhism is predominant, those are sort of their attitudes with women in those countries. Well, in terms of Buddhism and what the Buddha taught, it's very hard to determine exactly, limit to what the Buddha taught, because the Pali Canon is so vast and probably not all of it are the words of the Buddha. Uh, but we do know that the Buddha uh, taught and recognized nuns as equally attained with his male disciples. Um, the thing about, yeah, yeah, men and women have different shaped bodies. Why make such a big deal out of it? It's, uh, you know, we can also, I mean, the shape in a way, I mean, we can turn men into women and women into men by a surgery these days. So there can't be anything uh, completely essential to having a male body versus having a female body. And skilled cross-dressers can fool you. Not, not unskilled ones, but skilled cross-dressers can fool you. So I, I'm very suspicious. Anything when you make an argument that there's something unchangeable, inherent, intrinsic, something that all women share that no men have, um, doesn't seem to hold up at any level except the most basic biological level. And I don't know the statistics, but there are quite a number of children who are born intersexed with indeterminate. And people have to somehow assign not only, a, you know, people get assigned gender as soon as, they're, as soon as they pop out. We start assigning gender to them. There have been experiments done when people dressed their babies in yellow and people wouldn't handle them because they didn't know whether they should be rough or gentle with them. <laughs> so we start assigning gender to people as soon as they pop out. But some people can't even assign sex at that point. So, um, yeah, by and large, most men look like men and most women look like women. But we've made far too much of a big deal out of it that is, that is good for anybody. We've really put ourselves in a prison. And those of us who, <clears throat> I mean, I'm very well suited to being female biologically, as far as I know, but psychologically, no. No. When I was a girl, 
the thing I hated the most was being a girl. I absolutely hated being a girl because of the gender assignment that went with being a girl. That's not healthy to kids to grow up hating who they are because of the gender assignments to go with having a certain shaped body. And this also applies to boys who would prefer to, to cook or prefer home ec to shop. How many boys prefer home ec to shop? Would rather cook than have to monkey around with big, heavy tools. How much does this apply to kids who want to be artists? It's, it's, it's really, if we don't do ourselves any good by clinging to these rigid notions about what a body shape has to mean. Um, I'll take you next. And then I was wondering what your thoughts on uh, whether segregation is ever justified or useful. But for example, restrooms probably don't have very good reason to keep restrooms segregated between genders. But what about things like uh, dormitories for monastics? Well, um, the dormitories for monastics, the, there's a practical reason for that, which is, of course, that monastics have very strict celibacy rules. And um, especially for young monastics, it's probably better not to invite them to play with fire. Um, I'm not always against sexual segregation, though racial segregation, of course, is a completely other matter. If there are environments in which girls can, can be improved, their lives can be improved somehow by being segregated, or boys can be improved by being only with boys. As long as that isn't taught into any kind of superiority, inferiority thing, uh, it has to be studied carefully. But I don't see a problem with it in every case. You know, the, the Equal Rights Amendment was defeated because then we would have to have unisex bathrooms. That was the big argument. You have unisex bathrooms and airplanes. And I guess there's something called the 20,000 Club, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, people still have sex in their, in their bathrooms and airplanes. Um, homes have unisex bathrooms, of course. So. Um, but, you know, I still prefer at an airport to have, to have a, a tap of women's room. So it's a night here when the women's room was closed. The men graciously said, we all use the men's room, which I did without a second thought. Unless I was at a meditation program where we would have bathroom breaks, and they had equal number of stalls in the men's restroom and the women's restroom. So the women's line was huge. And finally, a few of us women got up the nerve to just get in the men's line and, and you know, use the men's restroom because it was getting ridiculous. We were huge long lines, no lines at all at the men's room. It doesn't make, you know, doesn't make any sense to be that uptight about going into a men's room to pee. Sort of a comment, sort of a question, which is that I feel like listening to your talk, this new possibility opened for me, which was very gendered people with no value assigned to <laughs> to like being very masculine or very feminine, that there was no extra meaning ascribed to that. And I was, because for me, in thinking about gender issues, androgyny has always been a, sort of a solution, like mm -hmm. if we all just sort of 
let go of the extra part of gender, we would be pr pretty similar. And <laughs> so I, I'm wondering if, if, if and, and I've always so I've always described the, the sort of opposite ends of gender as being sort of reactionary or... What do you mean by the opposite ends of gender? I mean very masculine or very feminine. What do you mean by very masculine or very feminine? <laughs> do, you, um, do you mean... Do you mean the way people dress? Do you mean emotional styles? What do you mean? Well, I think I mean both. I haven't thought through this very yeah. well. But I'm, I'm wondering if, if, in your opinion, letting go of gender means letting go of, like, being very masculine or being very feminine, or if it's really well, the... I think, it, I think it depends on what we mean by being very masculine yeah. or very feminine. People look at me, and I'm obviously a woman. I have long hair and red skirts a lot. Um, and I don't care. I don't care. That, you know, I mean, it's, it's irrelevant to, to what I, who I am in terms of what I think, what I care about, what I do. The fact that I have long hair and wear a skirt is completely irrelevant to that. And I don't need to have to wear... I mean, I used to be very enamored of androgyny as well, and I became much less enamored of it as mm -hmm. I got older because it usually means more blurring out of the feminine. It means usually women becoming masculine much more than it means men becoming feminine. Mm -hmm. Women can wear pants. Men don't wear skirts. You know, androgyny. I had, I had a book once that the cover was androgyny, and the cover was a very masculine-looking look, woman in a man's suit. Mm -hmm. So I'm not very, and, and very, I don't know that androgyny is, I, I used to use the term a lot in a lot of ways, and I've, I've given it up in recent years. But in terms of, uh, I think physically, physically what, what we feel comfortable with in terms of clothing and demeanor and appearance, there's no correlation between that and what we think, what we care about, what we want to do with our lives. Um, I happen to like I happen to like skirts. Pretty much every day I run into somebody that has is confused whether I'm male or female, and I I let it go. But sometimes, once in a while, I, I would I fight with whether I want to sit there and let with it. <laughs> I think it's good to let them fidget with it. It's a good lesson I, I for them. Guilty. No, it's a good <laughs> lesson. For, it's a very good lesson for them. And um, I kind of like Paul's story. I went to India and in Amsterdam. I went through the scanner thing, and then the, there was the male and the female that had to want me, and they stood there for ten minutes arguing over who was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> and I just stood there watching them, and they're looking at me, and I, I was. No, I think it's I think it's good for people. So they may need a little bit of um, somewhere along the line, a little bit of teaching about how useful their discomfort is to them. Yeah. Because um, it very much bears out the point that I keep making that we stick that label on people and then comes a whole train of other stuff. And it's the train of other stuff that's the problem. Yes? I have two questions. One is, uh, I have 
Now, I've been in Buddhist practice for maybe only eight years, nine years, and it's all been basically here. So I find myself, as sort of stated down there, unaware of gender people's gender biases in, in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And you did say something about Western versus Eastern. Mm-hmm. I don't know about different traditions, but here we have male teachers, we have female mm-hmm. teachers. And mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was curious if gender problems are more prevalent in different traditions or Eastern versus Western. Now my second question has to do with your idea of where... Could I answer the first question first? Certainly. It's easier. Um, you know, most Western sanghas are relatively egalitarian. And that's because Buddhism became popular in the West during and after the second wave of feminism. When women, if, if meditation is good for men, it's just as good for women. And young people did not fall, it was, you know, people, young people were not falling into the gender roles. The, the girls, the women, insisted on learning to meditate alongside their boyfriends. If Buddhism had come west 20 years earlier, um, that wouldn't have happened. So you have to, you have to, there's a very fortunate and I think karmically meaningful coincidence that Buddhism and feminism came together in the West. And I think there's something about the karmic task of Western Buddhism to demonstrate that we can have a gender equal, gender egalitarian Buddhism. So in the West, by and large, people do relatively well. Though, as I said, the most popular teachers, by and large, still are men. There's a lot of women teachers, but there's a glass ceiling in there, too, for women teachers. but it is very, very important that Western Buddhists don't assume that there are no problems anywhere in the Buddhist world or that there isn't a lot of baggage back there. In Buddha- I mean, it's the contemporary world where Buddhist women in Asia and Western women who want to be nuns are trying, you know, like they're getting a wall. Uh, so they're, they're, it's important, I think, that Western Buddhists be more informed about the bigger picture. I'm always saying Western Buddhists need to be more informed about the whole tradition and not assume that the way we do things at our center is the way they're done everywhere in the world because they're not. And I thank you for that message. It's it's just really important. Um, I mean, I I can't tell you how many times I've gotten criticized by people as, well, Rita, there aren't any problems here. We're all, you know, we're all equal. And you know, my own, when I, when I became Buddhist, um, I was very aware of, of Buddhist sexism because I was trained in comparative studies in religion. I knew a lot about Buddhism and I knew what I was getting into. What I decided was that Dharma was too good to let the patriarchs have it to themselves. <laughs> I knew that I would be writing Buddhism after patriarchy before I took refuge. I mean, I just knew that that had to be done. Um, 
So people always, as I said to you, people who have experience, have very definite, specific experiences, you have the primary responsibility to articulate it. Um, outsiders are limited in how much, people who don't share those issues are limited in how much they can actually accurately talk about them. So I invite you to write more and speak more and um, really make your voices heard. And I thank you for your comments. But make your make your own voices heard. That's the best way. Probably should limit to one more comment just because it's getting late. And I have to drive back. And you have an hour or more drive. Hour and a half at least. So who gets the last question? You can pick. <laughs> just a, an abbreviated version of the question that I had. Um, do you distinguish between embracing the dignity or value of identity and claiming? Is there anything? Um, no, it's not a. It's not a distinction I particularly make because embracing and clinging can very easily slide into each other. And um, I mean, it, it's where I would where I would say embracing identity is important is in overcoming any sense of poverty mentality about who one is, whatever one is. And that's a very deep value in Buddhism, that, that we do not need to apologize for who we are. Um, and that, to me, is, is, a, is more important and deeper than, you know, I embrace my identity as a woman, I embrace my identity as whatever else, a lesbian or whatever. Uh, it's more important to just em embrace to get rid of poverty mentality about who I am. Self-loathing is not a value of, at all in Buddhism. It goes completely against everything Buddhism is about, which is that we all are fundamentally awake, and then we all have these little obscurations that we, for some reason, are more interested in than in the fundamental awake quality. And so, um, embracing anything specific about our identity gets in the way of our fundamental awakeness, then it turns into clinging. And that can easily happen. Thank you so much, Rita, for being here tonight. Your important work. And thank you, everyone, for your attention throughout the talk and for wonderful questions and comments. Thank you, Rita. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.